This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. It's kind of a bittersweet moment for me because Viant Bio has fallen victim to the capital funding crisis and the company was just recently um, purchased by Axosim. And so at the, at the beginning of the year, um, I transitioned away from Viant Bio and started this new company, Brainstorm Therapeutics. But the work I'm going to describe today is all done by a very talented team of scientists at Viant Bio who have now spread to the four corners of the earth. And so the overview of my talk is I'm going to first talk about um, CNS drug discovery really needs to have a paradigm shift. Um, you know, it's estimated now that more than 90% of compounds that enter the clinic for neurological indications fail, and that number is actually about 100% for drugs that are thought to be disease-modifying for neurodegenerative disorders. And so I'm going to talk about a new platform we're developing to try to um, overcome this translational valley of death. I'm going to describe the value of patient-derived brain organoids, which I think are going to be able to revolutionize CNS drug discovery by developing an in vitro human disease model, which can identify um, compounds that work in a human disease setting at the very beginning of a drug discovery program, where you can get both safety and efficacy in a living um, organoid model of, of brain disease. I'm going to describe that work that was done, actually initiated by a very talented team in Allison's lab at, at UCSD. They developed the first organoid models for neurodevelopmental disorders, specifically the RET and CDKL5 organoid models. And we use those models at Viant Bio um, to then screen for compounds that can reverse the disease phenotype. And I'm going to talk today about discovering sort of two classes of compounds that are able to rescue the RET disease functional phenotype in RET organoids. One of them is now advancing into a phase two to proof of concept study being funded by the Department of Defense. And our work screening the CDKL5 organoids has identified several promising targets and compounds that produce a disease-specific rescue of the hyperexcitability phenotype. And then if there's time at the end, I'll briefly talk about what our future plans are. And so I think it's, it's no mystery to this audience that um, we are facing a global brain disease crisis. Brain disorders are the leading cause of physical and cognitive disabilities and the second leading cause of death. And despite um, the top 20 pharmaceutical and biotech companies spending over $130 billion per year on drug discovery, there have been no um, disease-modifying therapies discovered for any neurodegenerative disorder. And this global prevalence of brain disease is expected to double over the next 20 years due to the um, aging of the population. And, you know, it, it was just determined um, that in 2023, the risk of autism spectrum disorders is now 1 in 36 births. So there are more than 9 million autistic patients alive in the U.S. alone. And this creates an, a tremendous ec economic burden of autism spectrum disorders in the U.S., estimated to be greater than $268 billion in related health care costs. And so this is a serious crisis, and we need to find new improved methods to be able to discover brain drugs. And so big pharma is not able to effectively find these solutions, and it's really because of the challenges relating to what I'm describing here as the translational valley of death. And so we have the ability now to develop um, potent specific compounds that are able to interact with specific targets, um, but these compounds, when they move into the clinic, are failing. And it's primarily due to um, the lack of um, appropriate translational systems that allow us to be able to predict human efficacy from um, the preclinical studies. And so 100% of clinical drugs are failing for disease-modifying therapeutics, some um, for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and other neurogenic disorders, despite this massive expense by the R&D industry um, to try to overcome these issues. 
And so CNS Drug Discovery really needs to have a, a paradigm shift. We need to have better translational systems that can confer prediction of human efficacy and safety. And there are several reasons why this has been such a challenge across the conventional pharma drug discovery approaches. The first is really the lack of animal and cell culture models that can accurately predict human CNS efficacy. Um, rats and mice are just very poor predictors of human function in the brain. Also, there's the underlying biological heterogeneity of disease. Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease are called diseases, but in fact, they're really syndromes of multiple underlying biological um, pathophysiologies. Of course, the same is true for autism spectrum disorder. And this underlying biological heterogeneity creates a huge challenge in developing insights into the possible therapeutic approaches to try to restore normal function to these diseased intracellular and intracellular pathways. We also have a very limited understanding about the impact of target biology on the complex network of intracellular and intracellular disease processes. You know, we've read a great deal lately about the power of machine learning and AI to develop new compounds um, that interact very specifically with targets. But those compounds are still failing in the clinic because of the lack of understanding about how the individual targets fit into the underlying biology of the pathways. We really need to have a way of using sort of deep learning and network medicine approaches to understand target biology and the disease reactomes and how these individual disease reactomes identify the hubs that are going to be the relevant targets for, for being able to develop therapeutics for these diseases. And finally, it's the late introduction of human biology in the conventional drug discovery approaches, which leads to high failure and cost. And so there's really a need to develop these new translational models that are going to be able to accurately predict human efficacy and safety. And we've been finding out over the past um, decade or so that really patient-derived brain organoids have the potential to revolutionize CNS drug discovery. And so by being able to generate in vitro models um, of human brain organoids generated from patient-derived iPSC cells, we're able to generate human disease biology very early in discovery. And these organoids actually become a bedrock for translational research, and they're able to drive both um, target-based as well as phenotypic screening to identify molecules that can um, interrogate and, and correct underlying disease processes. And they provide a robust ability to translate molecules from preclinical studies in, into the clinic. And I'll show you that example today with our discovery of a new repurposing compound for, for Rett syndrome. In addition, you know, being able to do initial screening studies in human disease model systems allow us to identify efficacy in a human disease setting at the very beginning of a drug discovery process. And it really, again, is a late introduction of human biology and traditional pharmacological approaches that have led to high cost and failure. And the, the ability to use these human model systems allow us to be able to minimize the need for doing preclinical animal experimentation, which has been shown to be very ineffective at identifying efficacy in human disease settings. And finally, even the FDA is beginning to understand the value of um, in vitro human disease models. And the recent FDA Modernization Act II has indicated that human disease systems provide much better predictive preclinical models for, for drug advancement. And the compound we're going to describe today was advanced into a phase two clinical trial in the absence of requirement for any, any in vitro animal studies. And so the ability of using um, you know, patient-derived brain organoids and then very specific biomarker-based screening strategies to identify compounds that interact with the underlying disease biology allow us to identify compounds at the very beginning of a process that are efficacious. And 
again, the ability to use these patient-derived organoids allow us to take an advanced network medicine approach in which we can use deep learning and, and network medicine approaches to identify the disease reactomes and the actual hubs in these reactomes that regulate the output of the pathway leading to the disease process. And we can also use um, these network medicine approaches to identify um, a way of stratifying patients to find the right patients for the specific um, pharmacological tools that we're using, and also to identify the right endpoints, the right biomarker endpoints to interrogate the pathways in, in different diseases. And so I think brain organoids have the ability to really de-risk clinical translation and to advance compounds in a more rapid time frame that have the best chance of having efficacy in a human disease setting. And so um, at Viant Bio, we, we basically built our platform to use um, cortical brain organoids um, in high-throughput screening. And so we were, we were able to develop a platform in which we can measure the function of neuronal circuits by indirectly following calcium transients as a marker for underlying network synaptic activity and synchronized burst activity. And we can screen thousands of compounds in one day in um, individual organoids and determine both safety and efficacy in the same human brain organoid. And so we work with um, three to four well plates shown here on the left, and then we use a uh, um, molecular devices flipper machine to measure calcium transients in individual organoids, and we can measure um, synchronized neuronal activity in individual organoids in the presence of disease settings, as well as um, the ability of compounds to affect the disease um, um, activity with, within the organoid system. And so I'd like to now turn our attention to work we've done with, with Rett syndrome. Again, we were very fortunate to be able to use the Rett patient-derived organoids from the, from the Mutri lab in our work um, at Viant Bio. And um, Rett syndrome has autistic-like features. I'm, I'm not sure it's still considered to be an ASD disease per se, but they're clearly autism-like features in, in Rett patients. And about 95 to 97% of patients that have Rett syndrome have a mutation in the transcription factor called MECP2. And it's primarily an X-linked mutation, so the disease occurs mostly in girls, but it, it does occur in, in boys, and it's much more severe in boys because um, all the X chromosomes have the mutation as opposed to the females where there's a um, random inactivation of one X chromosome. Um, and so um, about 1 in 10,000 live births, uh, have been, in female births, have been found to have Rett syndrome. And it's characterized by a multi-system involvement, um, not just the brain, but um, the lungs, uh, the GI tract, um, with autistic-like features. And the most common feature is really regression um, of um, learned abilities um, followed by stabilization. And so purpose, loss of purposeful hand skills, loss of spoken language, gait abnormalities, stereotypic hand movements, seizures, and cognitive problems are all um, sort of regression from the skills that were acquired earlier by, by these, these young adults, young children. And so we have been able to study the synaptic network dysfunction in RET patient-derived organoids using our platform measuring calcium transients. And what you can see in this slide is on the left-hand side are the flipper recordings um, from healthy organoids. Um, and again, there's a nice rhythmic um, symmetrical activity of the synaptic burst activity. On the other hand, shown in the middle panel is the activity observed in um, red patient organoids that have a Q83X mutation. And you can see a very asynchronous, disrupted profile of, um, of calcium transients re reflecting the abnormal dysfunction of the synaptic network currents. And shown below that is the kind of observation we see with the R59X mutation in CDKL5 
which underlies the um, CDKL5 deficiency disorder. And you can see in this case, we see a dramatic hyperactivity. And so an individual mutation in MECP2 causes a very different synaptic network pathway than we see in mutations that happen in, in CDKL5. And so using these synaptic network currents, we, we're able to have a disease phenotype that's functional that we can use as a screening endpoint. And so we have a reproducible um, signal that has a high dynamic range and is amenable to doing HTS screening. One of the challenges has been to try to understand the actual underlying um, pathway waveform analysis. So we've developed um, machine learning algorithms to be able to dissect all the ways in which a disease waveform is different from a healthy waveform. And shown on the right is the individual um, differences across the peak counts and morphology, peak height, width, frequency, and ratio of the different peaks in a, in a RET individual shown in the, in the green, and the normal individuals are shown in the blue circle. And so we had developed this ability to be able to dissect the waveform analysis in the individual events. And there's sort of three major ways in which they differ. Um, the peak shape, where we can measure height, rise, and decay times. The peak class, in which we can measure um, the normal, nice, symmetrical, rhythmical, um, normal peaks versus these abnormal squiggles and things that happen in the, in the RET. And then on the far right shows um, the way to measure the irregular subpeaks. And so we found more than 50 different parameters that are different between the RET um, flipper waveform versus the healthy waveform. And so it's important, you know, one of the concerns people have had about working with organoids is the potential variability um, and, and the concerns about variability for using it as a drug discovery platform. We're very fortunate at Viant Bio to work with an organoid platform developed by Stemonics. Um, in which they were developing a healthy microbrain, which they then made commercially available to large pharma companies. And so Stemonix spent all, almost seven years developing a very reproducible, highly regulated platform for being able to study um, the, the waveform activities in healthy organoids. And again, it's important to point out that we're actually working with spheroids, um, um, not the, the sort of academic organoids you might think of with the work being done by Sergio Pasca's lab and Paula Orlada's lab and others, in which there is a great deal of variability. We're working actually with iPSC-derived patient spheroids, which don't have some of the complex um, morphological layering and such that are found in organoids that lead to a lot of the variability. So we're able to identify here that in three different differentiations in a different patients over the course of um, more than six months, we see a very reproducible synaptic network defect seen in these RET organoids um, in these three different batches. Again, different cell lines, different differentiations over many, many months. There's a very reproducible signal that gives rise to the same 50 features that are different in the disease versus the healthy organoids. So this is our stable platform that we can then use to begin thinking about how we're going to begin to interrogate medicines that might be able to re um, rescue the synaptic network network defect. And so what we have been able to do now is to use a multi-parametric analysis approach in which we can measure the individual subparameters of the waveforms, and then we can combine that together to determine a global recovery metric, which takes all 50 um, factors in, in, in common to develop a score um, based upon global rescue. And so um, on the right-hand side, um, so the figure two, the, the multi-parametric analysis shows all the 50 forms and how they change as a response to drug treatment, with um, dark colors being no recovery and, and light blue covers, 
colors being full recovery. And the global recovery network shown on the right hand side shows the dose response relationship that we can measure recovery of global function as well as measuring independent subparameters. And it's important to point out at this point, we don't know how any individual subparameter or the global rescue function might relate to symptomatic improvement in patients, but we're quite excited to begin to dissect that once we start getting clinical data from our compound um, in the next year or so. And so we set out to um, begin to try to discover medicines that can rescue the Rett disease phenotype, working in collaboration with the International Rett Syndrome Foundation. And they put together a curated library um, several years ago, which they called the Smart Library. And this library contained about 300 compounds that were thought to interact with um, individual targets and brain pathways that might have some role in um, Rett synaptic function. And so we screened this library um, Every compound was exposed to an individual organoid, and then we measured the global rescue function. And we found that there were two classes of compounds that were able to fully rescue the synaptic network dysfunction in, in these RET organoids, um, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and, and HDAC inhibitors. And so we chose to focus on acetylcholinesterase inhibitors as, as our candidates for therapeutic approaches. We were concerned about the potential that HDAC inhibitors had been approved for cancer indications, but we were concerned about chronic dosing of HDAC inhibitors as potentially being deleterious. So we chose to focus on the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. We, we focused on denepazil, which is an approved medicine called Aricept, and it's a centrally acting acetylcholinesterase inhibitor that was approved actually in 1996 by ESI for treating cognitive dysfunction Alzheimer's disease. And it has a relatively short, maybe 12 to 18 month efficacy in patients to improve their cognition, but then it, its activity fades over time. It has been tested though in children two years and older um, in clinical trials where it had no effect, testing it on fragile X, Down syndrome, autism, and, and ADHD. And the important point here is that there was safety data from the Nepazil in young children, which allowed us to consider then moving it into a, in, into a clinical trial in both the pediatric and the, the adult population. And there is you know, preclinical evidence of a role for the cholinergic pathway in the pathophysiology in, in Rett syndrome. And so um, Lorna Roll, in collaboration with Huda Zogby, knocked out MECP2 from cholinergic neurons. And they found that that loss of MECP2 in a very specific population of cholinergic neurons led to the disruptions and impairments in recognition memory and cholinergic modulation of the perirhinal cortex. And they found that denepazil in their mice was able to restore both novelogic recognition and the neuronal firing variability in the chat, in the choline acetyltransferase knockout MECP2 mice. And so with this data in hand, we tested the Nepazil for its ability to rescue the Rett disease phenotype in our Rett patient-derived organoids. And shown on the left is the, the data taken from ESI, which establishes the brain exposure levels of the Nepazil in human brains following um, dosage studies in the 5 and 10 mg per kg range. And that's important because it indicates the concentrations that might be relevant for dosing patients as well as the concentration we might expect to have an effect on reversing brain function in the red organoids. And you can see on the right, indeed, that um, increasing concentrations of denepazil is able to um, give a normalized recovery of the, the Rett disease phenotype. And we can see that the 5 and 10 mg per kg doses are able to give substantial improvement of the Rett disease phenotype towards a normal activity level. 
And this in, improvement in RET function is correlated with um, relevant brain concentrations and also the pharmacodynamic activity shown on the right-hand side of this figure. So we measured inhibition of acetylcholinesterase by denepazil in addition to measuring the functional recovery. And you can see that um, as we inhibit acetylcholinesterase activity, we see improvements in function. So this pharmacodynamic effect is quite encouraging and has led um, our, our this decision to advance the episode into a clinical trial in, in red patients. One important point to make out is that, you know, in, in the last year, we've had our first approved medicine for treating Rett syndrome, um, trifenotide, um, which is now trademarked as um, DEBU by, by Acadia Pharmaceuticals. Um, and trifenotide is the three amino acids from the N-terminus of IGF-1. And you may recall um, hearing from Alison Mutri's lab that Previously, they found that IGF-1 had some therapeutic effect um, in Rett syndrome. Um, and so we decided to test um, trifenotide in the Rett patient-derived organoids, and we found that it had no effect at all to rescue the Rett disease phenotype. So we've identified both a repurposing medicine, denepazil, as well as several NCEs, new chemical entities, against two novel targets that I, I can't talk about today that are able to rescue the Rett disease phenotype with a differentiated mechanism of action from, from trifenotide. And we find this quite exciting because it points to the possibility of co-administration opportunities for denepazil plus trifenotide. It's important to point out that IGF-1 and trifenotide are thought to work through an anti-inflammatory mechanism. And our wet patient-derived organoids are lacking microglial cells. And so we think trifenotide isn't working in this, in this system because we don't have the relevant microglial cells that are at part of the neuroinflammatory cascade that are driving Rett syndrome. But clearly, we have a neuronal-specific phenotype that we can measure by the septic network activity, which the NEPIL is able to rescue. So we think combining an anti-inflammatory mechanism together with a compound working on network activity may have improved efficacy in Rett patients. And so based upon this data, we applied for a phase two proof-of-concept trial in Australia through Viant Bio to test it in adult RET patients. And we were days away from approval of that clinical trial when our board of directors had to pull the plug on all preclinical and clinical work because of the capital funding crisis. And they hired bankers to try to explore potential sales of the company versus shutting the company down. And so we were very disappointed not to be able to proceed with our clinical trial in adult patients. But I was able to work together um, with the International Rett Syndrome Foundation to put this data together. And Jeff Newell, who was the lead PI on the Lavender study that led to the approval of trifenotide for Rett syndrome, he and, and Dominique Bouchard, the CSO at the International Rett Syndrome Foundation, applied for a Department of Defense grant to do a re repurposing study to test the two different classes of molecules that we discovered could rescue the Rett disease phenotype. They're going to be testing denepazil that we discovered, as well as the HDAC inhibitor varinostat. And Jeff had previous um, experience in his academic life that ketamine also seems to have some efficacy in preclinical Rett models. And so they're going to do an umbrella trial testing denepazil, varinostat, and ketamine in a side-by-side -side study in, in Rett patients. And they were funded... Um, I guess they received their, um, their award notice um, in September. So they're actively pursuing this now. And we're going to brainstorm therapeutics is going to help them with the IND filings for both um, trifenotide and for, and for denepazil. So we're quite excited. Um, this is one of the first examples that I'm aware of, of a compound that was discovered in a human disease brain organoid that's advancing to a phase two clinical trial in the absence of, um, of animal studies.
And so I'd like to point out one of the strengths of organized system is we obtained the first evidence that the Nepazil has a differentiated MOA in March and April of 2023, and we applied for the phase two clinical trial in September. So less than nine months from discovery to advancing of a, of a company in the clinical trial, largely due to um, the power of the organoid platform, the ability to do rigorous, well-controlled studies um, that lack variability due to the stomonics platform, and then the ability of um, the FDA to recognize the power of these elite human disease models to um, advance compounds, understanding the lack of power of preclinical animal studies really predict human efficacy. And so I'm going to stop there with, with our work on RET and switch gears now to another um, rare developmental disorder. Again, um, thanks to the um, Mutri lab, we were able to obtain CDKL5 patient-derived organoids, and we have been exploring the role of um, these organoids to discover medicines, both repurposing and novel chemical entities that are able to rescue the hyperexcitability seen in these CDKL5 um, disorder um, Organoids. CDKL5 is a serine threonine kinase um, that's expressed in the brain and it has really poorly defined um, intracellular substrates, but it's enriched in dendrites, um, especially in excitatory neurons. And there have been proteomic studies that have been done to identify it might have some role in processes involving microtubule based processes and cytoskeletal organization, as well as synaptic function in, at, at the dendrite level in excitatory neurons. And CDKL5 disorder is probably the most common genetically um, defined um, epilepsy. Um, again, it's, it's a relatively rare disorder, though. It occurs in about 1 to 40,000 to 1 to 60,000 births. And it's, it's a characterized by um, extreme early onset seizures, epileptic seizures, tonic-clonic seizures. There's also profound cognitive defects as well as other autistic-like -like symptoms. And so we have been able to examine now, again, using this assay of calcium transients as an indirect measure for synaptic network activity, we've been able to generate um, an in vitro model for CDKF5 disorder, which we can then use to screen for medicines that can reverse the hyperexcitability. And this slide shows um, in the middle of the flipper recordings from control and CDKF5 spheroids, and you can see that there's a time-dependent development of this dramatic um, hyperactivity shown in the middle. And in addition to the hyperactivity, there's also a reduction in size of the actual um, waveforms. Um, and so the far right-hand screening panel shows um, that we have developed a, a screening window between three and six weeks where we can actually measure the subchronic dosing effects of compounds on rescuing the hyperactivity in the CDKL5 patient-derived brain organoids. And again, on the left um, here, it shows a typical three to four wall plate, and it doesn't take a microscope to see the differences in the wild type versus the CDKL5 um, hyperactivity that's observed. Um, and the top right-hand panel shows the differences in peak height between disease versus healthy. And you can see there's a reduction in peak height in the CDKL5 organoid versus the healthy organoid, but the magnitude of that difference is not, um, not substantial. Again, the to do a screening study, we need to have a sufficient dynamic range to give um, what we commonly define as a Z prime factor greater than 0 0.5, which really provides the statistical measurement that you can have a chance to, the, the, to measure difference with compound treatment. And so the bottom panel um, shows that, in, indeed, 
the peak count over 10 minutes shows a, a dramatic difference between the CDKL5 versus control organoids with a Z prime factor of 0.51. So this really encouraged us. We had an assay we could now use to screen compounds that could rescue the disease phenotype. And to do this work, we partnered with Cyclica. Um, Cyclica um, is a company that has recently actually been purchased by, um, by Recursion, and they've developed a method using them um, in silico-based library screening to be able to use machine learning and AI to find compounds that interact um, with a specific target. And so I'll talk about that aspect of the work in just a minute. But on the left-hand side shows work we did internally at Viant Bio. So we created a library of 5,200 compounds that contain all the medicines that are approved by the FDA, all the compounds that have successfully passed through phase one, and then about 2,000 preclinical compounds that are kind of phenotype screening compounds. And so we chose to screen this library of compounds in CDKL5 organoids at a one micromolar dose. And we identified about 288 compounds that showed some statistically significant degree of, of rescue of the hyperexcitability phenotype. We then chose to take that pool of compounds and test them side by side in disease versus healthy organoids and identify 40 very promising compounds um, that showed a disease-specific rescue of the hyperexcitability. We then took those 40 and did full-range dose-response curves in both healthy and CDKL5 organoids and came up with 22 compounds that were able to rescue the disease phenotype in a dose-dependent manner that was disease-specific. And so these compounds are now being, um, they're now being processed through a, a rigorous platform to identify what has the most promising potential to move forward. On the right-hand side shows the profile we've been working together with Cyclica on. So some of these 22 compounds are, have known targets they interact with. Um, and some of them are, um, are unknown targets. Um, so the ones that have known targets, along with a novel target I'll describe in a minute, we work together with Cyclica. So we're able to take the known targets. Cyclica then used um, their crystal structures, and then they used um, AI machine learning approaches in silico using the, the, a library called the real library from Enamine. The Enamine library um, in Enamine in Ukraine, this all happened during the Ukraine war as, as a as it happened, um, but we were able to work together with, with Enamide to be able to identify um, hundreds of compounds that appeared to interact um, through the crystal structure of the uh, different target, um, targets that, that we shared with them. We then took the top 200 compounds from the in silico screening from each of the novel targets, and we screened them again in the organoids and used that as a way of filtering out um, um, the, the, the various targets and hits. In addition to that, we used the known literature um, in which there have been some targets that have been implicated from the known literature, and we used reference compounds from, the, um, from the, the, the chemical libraries to ascertain whether those targets worked in our assay. And one of the important take-home messages for somebody doing drug discovery is it's so the sooner you kill a program based upon rigorous science that has no chance of success the sooner you can get on to doing things that might have the best chance of success. And so it's fair. You can imagine how disappointing it is to a scientist, you know, spending months and months chasing down a target to do the critical experiment and find out that you have um, devalidated the target. And that happened here in the three targets that have, that have X's here. But again, the important message is the sooner you kill something based upon rigorous science, the sooner you can do something that has promise and, and value. And so... Of these 22 compounds, we, we've identified both 
novel chemical entities with the potential of being new molecules. We also identified a, a handful of potential repurposing compounds. And so shown on the left is that um, of the top 22 compounds that showed this dose-dependent inhibition in a specific manner, three of them are compounds that are actually already launched for other indications. Four of them are in phase two, and three of them are, are in phase one right now. So this pool of um of 10 compounds or compounds that have the potential to be repurposing candidates for CDKL5 deficiency disorder. And I'd like to point out that um, one major class of these compounds actually are statins. So statins have shown reproducible rescue of the CDKL5 um, disease phenotype. On the other hand, 12 of the compounds don't have um, known targets that have been approved. Um, Of those um, 12 compounds, Five of them have potential um, targets. Um, one co- well, and shown in the, in the numbers here. So we have five targets um, and different numbers of compounds that are known to interact with each of those five targets. And then we have eleven compounds that are um, un- 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 unknown pharmacology. And so I'd like to give you a highlight of the of the data now. And, and to me, this is probably the most exciting discovery we've made in the CDKL5 work we've done. We identified a receptor in the CDKL5 organoids that has defective function. In other words, shown on the left-hand side is when we take an agonist to this receptor, there's an over an order of magnitude rightward shift in potency of the compound to be able to rescue the hyperexcitability. Um, and that's a, a, a phenomenon um, um, that defines this as being a novel potential target for the disease. We took this target, interacted with cyclica, and identified a couple hundred compounds that were thought to interact with that target, and we screened them, and we identified one compound, which we highlighted here, VYNT0037, um, which was able to restore function to the defective receptor, but have no activity on its own in the, the, the wild-type organoids. And the antagonist to the receptor is able to fully block the rescue ability of the compound. And this is data which um, supports the compound being a positive allosteric modulator. And for those who are experienced in pharmacology in the audience, um, PAMs are compounds that have a very high promising potential in disease indications because they have no effect in normal function. They only work when the system's perturbed in a disease-specific manner. So positive allosteric modulators for this um, missing receptor, this def- defective receptor, could be very promising compounds for treating CDKL5 deficiency disorder. And so with that, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up this part of the talk. Um, so we've been able to show that cortical brain organoids are a robust and importantly reproducible model for human-first CNS drug discovery amenable to phenotypic and target-based screening. One of the main strengths of our platform is we use biomarker, clinically related biomarker endpoints to do screening. So we know compounds we identify in the organoid are working on a biomarker endpoint relevant to the clinical trials that will be pursued. Both the RET and CDKL5 patient-derived organoids show disease-specific phenotypes that can be quantified in an unbiased manner across both structural as well as functional endpoints. And phenotypic screening of the RET organoids identify two classes of targets that are promising um, therapeutic targets, HDAC inhibitors and estroclonestin inhibitors, and we've been able to advance the Nepazil and Verinostat into a phase 2A clinical trial in RET patients funded by the DOD. Um, it's a $15 million grant. Unfortunately, we received news of this um, grant award in March after the company um, hired bankers and, and began the process of, of shutting down. Um, it's, it's very sad timing. Um, and then finally, you know, both phenotypic and target-based screening of CDD organoids identified promising 
both repurposing and NC candidates for CDGL5 deficiency disorder. So um, in, in my new um, efforts at, at Brainstorm Therapeutics, we're taking this organoid platform to look at some of the more common um, neurodegenerative disorders, specifically initially focusing on, um, on familial Parkinson's disease genes. And so the discovery of these genetic forms of familial PD provides a promising path forward for disease-modifying therapeutics for familial Parkinson's disease with the potential then to expand into, into the sporadic population. And we've been focusing on the enzyme um, encoded by the GBA1 gene, encoding for the lysosomal enzyme, glucosuberosidase. It's the most common genetic mutation that, that causes Parkinson's disease. Interestingly, it's only about 30% penetrant. And so the, by discovering medicines that can improve the dopamine neuron regeneration in GBN organoids, we can identify therapeutics for Parkinson's disease and understanding the resilience factors in the patients that have the pathogenic mutations but don't get the disease will allow us to identify potential um, resilience pathways that are relevant to neurodegenerative disorders. And this slide just shows that um, we've been able to measure um, profound dopamine neuron degeneration in multiple different patient-derived organoids from GBA1 patients. Um, the top panel C and D show um, the loss of um, dopamine neurons um, measured by TH immunostating, and the bottom panels E and F show the loss of um, dopamine secretion. And these are in um, two different patients from two different, completely different differentiations. So it's a very stable platform for being able to discover medicines that can prevent dopamine neuron degeneration in familial PD. And again, you know, there are probably half a dozen or more different familial genes that all cause Parkinson's disease, but they all work through different cellular pathways. Um, GBA1 is primarily a lysosomal pathway. LARC2 is primarily a mitochondrial pathway. Pink Parkin work on nerve terminals. Um, and so all these different familial genes all work through different pathways, but they all have one common event. They kill dopamine neurons. And so this is really an exciting opportunity now to use deep learning and network medicine to be able to understand what these disease reactomes are for these different familial genes and then map them onto the common pathway, the common hubs that are relevant to the sporadic population. And so with that, I'd like to... Um, Thank my colleagues at Viant Bio who really did this pioneering work. Um, the work, again, this group has spread pretty much to the four winds. Um, Cassiano Caramu is now working at Recursion, um, and Nick Congeris and Andy LaCroix have, are working now with Axosim, the company that actually has bought the, the Viant Bio Stamonics assets. And so with that, I'd like to thank you for listening to me, and um, if you have any questions or thoughts or want to reach out, um, here's my contact information. So thank you very much. been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.